good afternoon and thank you for being here. A young man anticipating matrimony was looking for the secret to a long and happy marriage. He decided to ask his uncle Henry, who had been married for 57 years, what the secret of a long and happy marriage was. Uncle Harry, Henry answered, well, son, the secret to a happy marriage is good communication and making sure you have a good understanding. When I was first married to your Aunt Margaret, we had an old mule named Jake. Jake was the orneriest old mule you, the world had ever seen. One day we were going to town, and old Jake was hitched up to the wagon, and he wouldn't move an inch. Your Aunt Margaret said, okay, Jake, I'll take care of this. So she told old, old Jake, Jake, get up there. Jake just shook his head and stamped his feet and wouldn't move an inch. Your aunt said, Jake, that's one. Your aunt said, okay, Jake, it's time that we go to town. Let's get moving. Well, old Jake just stood there and shook his head again and stamped his feet. Your aunt said, well, Jake, that's two. One more time, your aunt said, come on, you old mule, get going. And one more time, old Jake didn't move an inch. Your aunt then said, well, Jake, that's three. Then she got out of the wagon, picked up a two-by-four about four feet long, and hit old Jake over the head as hard as she could. The young man said, well, Uncle, that's an interesting story, but what has that got to do with this understanding that you talk about, the secret of marriage? Uncle Henry says, well, I'm getting to that. You see, when I told your Aunt Margaret that I didn't think she should have hit old Jake that hard, she turned to me and said, well, Henry, that's one. And ever since, we've had an understanding. Well, this lesson is not about uh, having a long and happy marriage. Uh, Charles talked about that this morning. Instead, it's about counting. Uncle Henry learned that sometimes... How a person counts is pretty important. Tonight I'd like to spend just a few minutes talking about counting and some scriptural examples that talk about how counting can be very important. Every 10 years, as you know, the census, Department of Commerce, does a, does a, uh, a census of the United States, counts the people. And that's appropriate. There's an appropriate time to take stock occasionally and to do an accounting. And there's scriptural precedents for this. Numbers 1, 1 through 3, God told Moses to count the people. Reading from verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of the meeting on the first of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregations of the sons of Israel by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the numbers of names, every male head by head from 20 years old and upward. Whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. So God says, take a census, do an accounting. But in 2 Samuel 2, 24, verses 1 through 4, King David initiated a census that didn't go so well. Starting in verse 24, it says, Now again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Jacob. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba 
and register the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. The census had terrible consequences. God punished David and Israel with a terrible plague. And you have to ask the question, why would God's census in Numbers be a good thing and David's census in 2 Samuel be a bad thing? I mean, after all, both times they're just counting the people. Well, God told Moses to count the people in Numbers to demonstrate in a very practical and tangible way how they had been blessed while they were in captivity in Egypt. They were tremendously blessed and were well established to become a great nation to the glory of God and, of course, to his service. David didn't count that way. David counted to assess his strength, his ability, his power, his own glory. He left God out. He may have realized that those blessings had come from God, but he didn't count to glorify God, he wanted to see if he had enough in his own mind to gauge his strength, ultimately to see if he was strong enough in his own mind to do whatever he wanted to do. It was a terrible breach of faith. It showed who and what David was depending on, not God, but himself and his army. Now, we count a lot of things, don't we? And we need to use those two examples to be very careful how we count. When we count our blessings, do we do so to make ourselves feel good about all of the things we have? Or do we count as an act of worship and thanksgiving to the giver of all good things? When we look at our bank accounts, are we counting to make sure we have enough? Are we looking to see if we have the security we need for the future, relying on our own resources? Are we counting to see if we have enough? Or are we counting to make sure we're using God's blessings wise and well to his honor and to his glory? When we count attendance at every service, and we do that, and we count it and post it on the board, uh, and we also count the contribution, uh, we need to be very, very careful how we count. When we count, do we leave God out? Do we count attendance to show how well we're doing as a congregation? Do we count as a way of reflecting on how much God has blessed us? Do we count to recognize how important everyone that's here, included in the count, is? For many years, I'm not sure that anyone ever noticed, the number posted on the board never matched the number of the people that were here. There's 15 here, and normally we would just post 15. But for years and years and years, those numbers didn't match. However, the count that was reflected on the board was accurate. And you might say, well, that sounds strange. How in the world could that possibly be? Well, the number posted was always three higher than the number of people. After all, when we meet God the Father, God the Son, and God his Holy Spirit are here, aren't they? Shouldn't they be counted? Why, when we count, would we leave them out? But maybe one of the most important reasons to count our attendance is not to account for who is here, but who is not here. 
And are we counting to that end? In Luke chapter 15, verses 3 through 10, Jesus talks about how he counts. In verse 3, so he told them a parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that the same way that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous per persons who need no repentance. Is that the way we're counting attendance? To make sure that all the sheep are safe? When we count the contribution, why do we post the numbers? Why do we post the budget? Does the budget represent those things we want to do for the Lord? Of course we'd like to do more, wouldn't we? Does the budget represent all that the Lord expects us to deliver, to accomplish, to his glory? I doubt that the budget represents that. Does it represent what we as a congregation think we can do? I think maybe we're getting closer. We need to be very careful here. How many times do we count the contribution and it falls short of the budget that's posted? From a worldly business-like perspective, it's easy to understand why we do that. But I wonder if our counting doesn't somehow miss the point. Are we posting the numbers to shame folks into giving more? And does that work? Do people need to see that what's posted to know how much or how little they're giving? I believe the numbers we post week after week may reflect the fact that we haven't counted correctly. The numbers we post reflect a monetary shortfall just about every week, a problem with the amount of money we're collecting, but that is probably a lousy way to characterize the real issue that we face as a congregation. We keep showing that we don't have enough, and as we routinely adjust the budget down so that the numbers sort of match, we're lowering our expectations, and I think we're lowering our commitment. What we show on the board may indeed be an indicator that we've left something out. We as a congregation may not be counting correctly. And we as individual Christians may not be counting correctly. And as the sons and daughters of the Most High God, princesses and princesses in the kingdom of God, our counting should reflect that. Let's be careful how we count. It all boils down to who we put first, God or ourselves. Maybe the way we're counting does, in fact, reflect what we're doing in this regard. And maybe, just maybe, it's not all that good. Jesus in Luke 14 puts this in perspective in a very practical and graphic way. And he doesn't mince words. In Luke 14, verse 25, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now, this is one of the scriptures that we find very uncomfortable, don't we? We spend a lot of time on this scripture talking about what Jesus means, trying to explain that. Or often we spend a lot of time explaining what he doesn't mean by this rather than just taking his words for what they are. When he says we must hate our family and our own life, that's troubling, isn't it? When he talks about that we have to give up all our possessions to be his disciple, that's very, very troubling. Jesus is making it clear that it is essential that we count the cost of following him. This is a, a everything or nothing deal. Then we must be willing to let go of all that we are and all that we have for Jesus. Halfway measures like the guy who started building a tower and couldn't finish is just worthy of ridicule. It's terrible. It's a waste. Like the king who had better consider the cost of going to war before he commits, we absolutely must consider the cost and count the cost of claiming Jesus as our Savior. We like scriptures that talk about salvation as the free gift of God. That sounds great. It sounds so easy. No arithmetic required. No counting needed. No sacrifice on our part. Yes, salvation is free and there's nothing that we can do to earn it, but that doesn't mean that there aren't requirements that have to be met to attain it, to take advantage of that free, free gift. Jesus tells us to count the cost. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, helps us understand this. Paul says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. The word translated as rubbish has some very crude connotations that we won't go into. But he's talking about rubbish, stuff that we don't want. We give up because of the surpassing value of Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, there's an old-time, honored, well-known, famous saying you've all heard, you can't ride a bicycle and drive a car at the same time. Well, maybe it's not all that old and and maybe it's not all that famous, and maybe you haven't heard. I just made it up, actually. But it's true. You can't ride a bicycle and drive a car at the same time. So what if you were riding an old and broken down bicycle down the road, and someone pulled up beside you in a brand new Ferrari and offered you that car? But of course, if you were to take advantage of that and go off and drive that car, you'd have to get off your bicycle and you'd have to leave it behind as you got into the Ferrari. There's no room in the Ferrari for an old rusty bicycle. Well, what would you do if that happened? Well, of course, you off you'd go in your new ride. Paul didn't trade all that he had for his salvation in Christ. We don't trade our possessions 
for Jesus. We don't buy salvation. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But we cannot cling to or be held back by our possessions, our wealth, our past, even our families, and follow Jesus. We have to get off the rusty bicycle. We have to leave it behind. When we consider the surpassing greatness of God and his son and his blessings, and Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 3. And I love this, this verse, starting with verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its names, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. When we read about what God intends for us to have, all that we are, all that we own, is indeed rubbish, something to be left behind, just a rusty old bicycle that we leave by the side of the road. When God offers us the ride of our life, so let's renew our commitment to put God first in all things. And when we count, let's be very, very careful how we count. When we count, count Jesus first. And once you count Jesus first, maybe you don't need to count anymore. If you need help from the congregation in this regard, or if there's anything that we can do for anyone this evening, if you need to put Christ on in baptism, we can help you with that. If you need anything, why don't you come as together we stand and sing.